Isaiah 53, starting at verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and who can speak of his descendants? But he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, and with the rich in his death, though he had no, done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Amen. This is what we're going to look at this morning. It's all there for you to see. And if you need me to send you a wee PDF of this, I can easily do it, if you would just ask. From the passage that Rona has just read, and which we're going to ponder for for the next wee bit, it's becoming clear who the servant is. We see that the suffering of the servant, uh, we, we look at that and we see his response to that suffering in verse 7. In verse 8, we're going to look at the death of the servant and the significance of that death, very briefly, but hopefully succinctly. And then we're going to look at the burial of the servant and why that burial may hold some hopeful twist uh, to us. With your Bibles open, and I'm not asking you to mark it if you, you find it difficult, but maybe take up your imaginary pen, right? So everybody, humor me here. Take up your imaginary pen, right? Imaginary pen. And I want you just to look at verse 7. And I want you to highlight the verbs that are in verse 7. Oh no, what's a verb? <laughs> right? In your mind's eye, highlight the verb. And I'm going to ask you another thing. Would you then notice from these lists of verbs that it's full of passive verbs? Oh no, it's a passive verb. <laughs> right, look. At, so, verbs that, a passive verb is this, a verb that communicates an activity that's performed by someone else on someone else. In here, it's full of passive verbs. Things that others did to Jesus. So not so much the activities of Jesus, although he is very much involved, but their activities that other people did to Jesus. Four things that people did to Jesus in uh, verse 7. And the first is, they oppressed him. He was oppressed. The, the, the meaning behind the word oppressed is to, to uh, press, to drive, to extract, to treat harshly. Oppression. Imagine the Egyptians who, were made, who, who made the Israelites make uh, bricks out of straw. They oppressed them by demanding this thing. They did not reduce how many bricks they to make, but they just punished them all the more by taking one of the building blocks of bricks, straw, and that was to oppress them, where you get a taskmaster burdening slaves all the more. Jesus was burdened by people. He was oppressed. Something was placed on him, taken away from him, driven and forced Jesus was forced in this passage. He was afflicted, which means humiliated. He was treated with contempt. They spat at him. 
He was mocked. He was shamed. All of this was Jesus' experience, was the experience that Isaiah was seeing of this servant 700 years before Christ. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. In other words, he was helpless, defenseless, but aware of his surroundings and aware of the impending danger. This was Jesus' experience. And he was a sheep before its shearers, stripped as sheep are stripped. Jesus was stripped naked of his clothes, of his friends, of his honor, of his divine protection. This was Jesus' experience. And this was experience that Isaiah saw in the suffering servant. Now, how did Jesus respond? with silence, with patience, with acceptance. You can read of them all up there in these accounts in the Gospels, in the four Gospels. It was an amazing silence. It was an amazing patience and an amazing acceptance of what was happening. Verse 7 says, He did not open his mouth. Though subjected to horrendous treatment, he didn't scream, Father, help! He didn't do any of that. He didn't call on his father for divine help. He did not open his mouth. He could have, and 10,000 angels could have came to his rescue, marched, you know, like a scene from Lord of the Rings, where all the elves or all of these guys are in regimented form, shining, strong, determined, and will do anything for the king. They would have done that at Jesus' command, but he did not open his mouth. And if he did, who would have blamed him? But he didn't. And he was subjected to horrendous abuse. He kept his mouth shut, he was silent, he was patient. And he was in acceptance. And it also says, as a sheep is before us, its shearers is silent. In other words, Jesus accepted what was happening. He accepted the injustice. And that's how Jesus died. He quietly submitted himself to the great enemy of death. Believing not my will, but your will, Father. This is the picture that Isaiah is seeing 700 years before. And we now, because we are after that, is what happened to our Savior Jesus Christ. He humbled himself, as Paul says to the Philippians. He humbled himself by coming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, I have done, I've been involved in sheep shearing. Not done it before because it's quite a tricky business. But I've been involved in it as a messy, mucky, and actually quite a noisy experience because of the farmers all chatting and music playing and sheep waiting. And if I remember right, when a sheep is being sheared, very I can't recall a sheep ever baying, is that the right word, when it's being sheared. But first century Jews are you know, 2nd century or 1st century BC Jews would have understood that. 
much more clearly than me. Here's my illustration. Three or four times I've had an open razor shave. Is that what you call open razor? I've had an open razor shave. And I can tell you without, without a shadow of a doubt, during that whole experience, I did not open my mouth. <laughs> I was very quiet and very still, accepting what was happening because I didn't move. So as, when I was thinking of that, I thought, oh man, I can't remember. I've seen too many, many gangster movies. But why didn't Jesus defend himself? He could have. He was innocent. He had no guilt. Why did he not at least engage in a debate about how humble he was and how righteous he was? But that's how Jesus died, keeping his mouth silent. Here's the reason why I believe Jesus was silent. There was guilt. There was lots of guilt. But it was not his. It was ours. He remained silent for our guilt. John's guilt. My guilt. Jane's guilt. At that point, as a sheep is before its shearers, Jesus remained quiet. When accusations and, and trumped up banana court stuff was happening, Jesus kept, kangaroo court, Jesus kept his mouth shut because of you and because of me. That's what Isaiah is seeing 700 years before. He accepts the crime and submits himself to death for us. In verse 8, let me read this, I should read it. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. Jesus was just not led to the slaughter. Jesus was slaughtered. He was cut off from the land of the living. The Hebrew here is quite interesting. This idea of being cut off elsewhere. Did I put up there? Yeah, elsewhere. In um, uh, Exodus 14, that separated idea, the same idea of being cut off, is when Moses was commanded by God to lift up his staff and to raise his hand over the waters of the, the Red Sea and uh, the sea parted. There was a separation. And the Israelites walked through as if on dry land. But also, um, in Numbers 12, this idea of excluded is involved in being cut off as well. Remember when Aaron and Miriam spoke badly against Moses and, and God pronounced judgment on Miriam and her skin became as white because of leprosy. And Moses spoke up on her behalf and says, Lord of mercy, in effect. And God says she must be separated from the people outside the camp for one week. And, and, and that would be the healing process, I, I guess, or after that one week, she would be deemed clean and be brought in. So that is what is happening here uh, with the Hebrew word uh, being cut off. And that's what Isaiah said would happen to the servant. And that is what happened to Jesus. He was taken away, he was cut off, and he experienced the ultimate separation. And that was death. 
And this is the heart of the gospel. That Jesus was cut off from the land of the living, not for his own guilt, but for the guilt of his people. And it runs all the way through this chapter. Verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was laid on him. And by his wounds we are healed. And now in verse 8, Isaiah makes it crystal clear that Jesus of the servant did not die for his sake but died for ours. Verse 9 reads this. He was, assigned a gray, a, a, he was signed a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had, not, he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Verse 7, we see that the servant Jesus suffered. Verse 8, we see that the servant, Jesus, died for his people. And now we see that the servant, Jesus, is buried. Now, this week, I'll be involved in in Eileen Walker's funeral at St. Bride's at 12 o'clock on Tuesday, if any of you knew Eileen and want to pay your respects to the family. And I knew Eileen a little bit. Uh, Maureen, your team's, Maureen, you're possibly the best in here, and, and Val, and, and there's others, the, the Myers. We knew this lovely week, Catholic women, or come from a Catholic background, and she was, just seems to be at all things. Now, I, I didn't have a deep conversation with her, so I don't know truthfully about where she stood in regards to Jesus. Others would speak a lot more um, uh, with a lot a lot more insight than I do. But funerals are one of these strange places where you, when it's someone who we know who's died in the Lord, when, when one of our brothers and sisters in Christ has died, there is hope. So yes, there is mourning, but there is hope because we know the hope that lay within them. Les Brown, as he is in the, the hospital in Pitlochry, is waiting to be with his father. Words directly from his mouth. He has hope and his anticipation. And, and it's all because of how Jesus died. It's not optimism. It's hope. There's a big difference between optimism and, and sure and steadfast hope. In verse 7, there is hope because the servant suffers not as a a guilty sinner, but the servant suffers as a sin-bearing lamb. In verse 8, there's hope because uh, he does this not for his own sins, but he does it for the sins of his people. There is hope in that. And here in verse 9, there's hope because he's mixed up with wicked men and his dying, and we know that between the two rebels or thieves or whatever they were in life, but unlike common criminals of Jesus' day, he ends up in the tomb of a rich man and with the rich in his death. So what's significant about this that at times will bring hope Perhaps it is this. When Jesus died, the work of redemption was done. 
It is finished. Some people today um, would suggest that his work was not finished, that he descended to hell, and in that descending to hell, he offered another salvation. Don't believe that's a historical conviction of the church. But he descended to be glorified in the regions of the dead. That is a very ancient understanding of the church. And our tradition and Holy Saturday were somber and were quiet as we reflect on what has happened and mourn, but look forward because we know it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. Jesus says it is finished. The work of redemption is done. And so there is hope. Yes, he's suffered. Yes, he's assigned a place with the wicked. Yes, he dies like a criminal between uh, two thieves. And the expectation at that point would be that he would go to, is it Potter's Field, if that's the right term. He'd be laid with those who were criminals. I've put up the, the place of dishonor on the slide. The Valley of Hinnom. This, this is, a, it still is, it's in the south uh, part of, of the city of Jerusalem, in David's old city of Jerusalem. And that's where the rubbish dump was. But not only the rubbish dump, but thieves and criminals and the enemies at times were not buried, but were placed in this place called the Valley of Hinnom, and there they would be burnt, or they would be food for the ravens. And over time, that place geographically became less significant for God's people, but theologically became very significant as Gehenna. The place of burning, the place of judgment, the place of the dead. That's where we get our understanding of hell from. That should have been the place potentially where Jesus or the two thieves were to go. Placed in the valley of dishonor. And yet Jesus was placed in a tomb of honor, in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, who is placed in Joseph's tomb. It's as if God says, it is finished, it is done. You've humbled yourself before me. You are, you are without sin and you've died and it is done. And now you will have a place of honor in those moments where he lay in the grave. There's an, I think I may have put this in a slide. Let me just see. Yeah, this commentator, um, Herbert uh, Wolf. I, I thought this was fantastic. I'll read it as it is up there. In this passage, the word wicked is plural. He, you know, let me, let me just get that. So, verse 8. Verse 9. He was designed a grave with the wicked. The word wicked is plural, which fits the two thieves who died with Christ. But the word rich in, in the Hebrew here is singular. And this is an expected change. This is an unexpected change in number because the words are in a parallel line. And for good grammar, they would have kept it all neat and tidy in the Hebrew. Either plural there and plural there or single there and single there. So it's unexpected. So it's an interesting confirmation of the change from plural to single 
is seen in the St. Mark's Isaiah scroll, one of the Dead Sea Scrolls. The scribes started to write the plural form for the word rich, which is asirim, and realized that he'd made a mistake, so he scratched out the last two letters, leaving the singular asir. I love stuff like this. I don't know if you get it, and maybe I should keep it up for 10 minutes so you can read and think, okay, the word was wicked and single. He was with the wicked, plural, beside. And he should have went with the wicked into the place of dishonor. But in Isaiah, it stresses, no, he was placed with the wicked and death, singular. It was just him. And I just think that is, that blows me away. I love it. God is good all the time. So, what are you preaching on on Sunday? Jesus. Have you got a clear picture of Jesus? Yeah, I know. Isaiah's building up this picture of Jesus for us to ponder, to reflect. I get excited about all that structure of a sentence and how it's done. Other of you may just get blown away by something totally different. But hopefully, it either restores your salvation. Lord, forgive me that I've boxed you in. Lord, I've forgotten all the stuff you've done for me. Forgive me, Lord, that this cheap grace that I'm walking about in. Or you're starting to gain a picture of Jesus for the first time. Jesus, this is scary. Lord, if you are real, reveal yourself to me. Or you can sit in the fence and worry about today and tomorrow. Even though Jesus says, don't worry. Tomorrow's got enough to be concerned of. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. But you know that he appeared so that he might be taken away, so that he might take away our sin, and in him is no sin. Words from the Hebrews and words from the first letter of John. So he was, dis- he was treated with disdain, yet he should have been treated with devotion. We receive his grace, so therefore he should receive our devotion. Remember the servant of the Lord, his suffering as a lamb, a sin-bearing lamb, his death for our sins, and his honorable burial among the rich, and there is hope in that. For his kingdom will never end. This is our God. I ask that you would just pray with me just now. And I'd just like to sing one song. Father, I thank you for your son Jesus. I thank you, Father, that he was obedient in all ways. I thank you that now he is seated in the place of honor. For holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty... There is none like you. The heavens and earth declare your glory. Pray, Father, that you would stir our hearts in regards to his death, the punishment that he paid, the place where he was laid. Father, because we know that death could not hold him. And we know that you raised him again to life, the first fruit of all the resurrection of the new creation. 
Lord, forgive us when we uh, treat this grace that you have given us cheaply. Forgive us if we continually go back to our rebellious ways. In the name of your Son, I pray.